And please open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. In these weeks of the summer, we've been studying the book of the prophet Micah as a sort of bridge until everyone gets back from their vacations and the school routines start again, at which time we will get back to our main study of First Peter. But today we draw closer to the conclusion of our study of Micah. We're in Micah 6 today and Micah 7 next week to finish the book. And two weeks ago, we were in Micah 5, where we saw that beautiful promise of the incarnation of God, that the one whose coming forth is from Bethlehem, his coming forth is also from days forever. And so we had a nice Christmas sermon in August. This morning, as we come to Micah 6, it's a a return to some of the themes that Micah was addressing in the first few chapters. Namely, it is Micah exposing the sins of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and declaring God's judgment and punishment upon them for it. Micah 6 is a courtroom scene. It's a courtroom scene and it's a trial. So what we're going to do is read Micah chapter 6. I'll make explanatory comments along the way and then we'll get into the outline of the sermon after that. Let's read the word of God in Micah chapter 6 and there will be comments along the way. Verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Let's pause. You hear the courtroom scene, the the arise and plead your case. God says, I have an indictment against you. What's an indictment? An indictment is the presenting of formal charges. An indictment means you are going to be officially accused of something. God says, I will contend with Israel. I will prove them to be in the wrong. So what does God charge Israel and Judah with in this trial? Verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Notice that in accusing Israel, God recounts his own innocence. God recounts his own faithfulness and all that he has done for them. All that he has done to free them from slavery, to give them prophets and priests and leaders, to bring them into Canaan, to give them victory over much more numerous and powerful nations and kingdoms with wonders and miracles. 
God rescued them from bondage. He gave them a beautiful promised land with houses they didn't build and orchards they didn't cultivate and vineyards they didn't cultivate and towns that they didn't construct and ramparts and fortifications and so on and so forth. They just inherited it. And God says, what have I done to you that you should treat me in this way? How have they treated him? How have they repaid or responded to God? He says, look at all that I have done to you. Look at all that, all that I have done for you. You have taken advantage of my kindness, God says. He says, Israel's response to my tender care is unforgivably disproportionate. You've abused my patience. You've ignored my mercy. You've turned away from me. Have I so bothered you and done evil to you that you would go away from me? God's saying, have I done bad things to you or mistreated you that you should turn away from me? Look at what I have done for you. Verses 6 and 7 show someone who knows that they're guilty and they're desperate to make things right, but they are in distress about how to do so. How can we be reconciled to God? What does he want? Verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You you hear all these repeated questions as, as the person thinks, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do, what can be done? Each question is an attempt to discern how God's justice can be satisfied in light of their guilt. In the Old Covenant, sacrifices were ordained by God, instituted for the making of satisfaction. But this person is distraught because they're already offering sacrifices, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? We're already doing that. And so the apparent solution is, well, maybe we could offer more sacrifices, more animals, more oil. Well, I don't think that more of the same would work. What if we offered a more precious sacrifice, something more precious to me, namely a firstborn son? But God has forbidden the sacrifice of of humans. So all of these questions seem to be rhetorical and hopeless. Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? No, no, and no. With what shall we come before the Lord? We have nothing. What does God want? We have nothing. This is something that we see in other parts of the Old Testament, such as Psalm 50, where God says in Psalm 50, verse 9, he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why will God not accept their sacrifices? He says later in the psalm in verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God also says in the same psalm, if, I, if animals were what I wanted, all the animals of the earth are mine. I wouldn't need to ask you to bring them to me. I don't want your animals. I don't want your blood. Those aren't the things that I actually want. And so whether it's Micah 6 or Psalm 50, the question then is, what does God want? What do you want, God? And verse 8 responds. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
Does this remind you of something Samuel said to Saul? That God desires something and not something else? That God desires obedience and not sacrifice? To obey is better to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams? God says, what I want is not sacrifices. What I want is for my people to live and to walk in holiness and righteousness towards me and love towards their neighbor. I don't want you to live in sin and then offer sacrifices for it. I want you to love kindness. That's love for your neighbor. I want you to do justice. That's love for your neighbor. I want you to walk humbly with your God. That's love for God. Well, in light of what God does require in verse 8, the following verses show that Israel and Judah are doing the complete opposite, the complete contrary of verse 8. So look at verses 9 through 12 where we see that they are not doing justice, they are not loving kindness, nor walking humbly. The accusation. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. In verse 10, we see accumulated wealth. And God calls it treasures of wickedness. This accumulated wealth is treasures of wickedness. And verse 11 explains that the way in which this wealth has been acquired is through deceit and extortion. It's been acquired through false balances or false scales. In other words, fraudulent business practices or disadvantaged business deals where the powerful take advantage of the weak who can do nothing to stop them. And then in verse 12, we're told that the wealthy and powerful also use violence and lies and manipulation to make themselves stronger, to make themselves richer at the expense of and to the abuse of those who do not have the same resources and can't defend themselves. This is the complete opposite of doing righteousness and loving kindness. This is not seeking a just transaction with your neighbor. This is leveraging your position and your resources to get the maximum that you can for yourself and the worst deal for the other person. This is using intimidation and deceit to get what you want or to take what you want from others. Well, God has presented his indictment, his formal accusation. Israel has no defense, no means of satisfaction. And so the rest of Micah chapter 6 is God declaring the sentence. Here's the accusation. It's proven to be true. You're guilty. And now the sentence is pronounced upon Israel. But we, we need to do a little bit of background work before we read the sentence so that we better understand it. Because all that Micah is going to do in pronouncing this sentence on Israel, all that he's going to do is pronounce the curses of the Mosaic covenant against Israel. If you're unfamiliar with that, let me ever so briefly explain it to you. God made a covenant with Israel through Moses. 
Moses was a mediator. God communicated and transacted the covenant through Moses who transmitted it to the people. And in this covenant, God told them, I'm giving you the land of Canaan. It's a holy place that I've set apart for you, and I've set you apart for it. You must live in a holy way in order to inhabit this holy space. If you live in holiness, in purity, in obedience, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will make your crops to be fruitful. I will make your families to be fruitful. I will give you victory over your enemies. I will defend you. I will prosper you. I will bless you. And God said in the same covenant, he said to them, but if you do not keep my commandments, if you do not walk in my ways, if you break my covenant, then I will curse you. I will punish you. Let me read to you some excerpts from Leviticus chapter 26. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I'm just going to jump around in that chapter. Leviticus 26, where the curses of the covenant are declared against disobedience. For example, he says in verse 14, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, verse 15, but break my covenant, then verse 20, the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Verse 25, I will bring a sword upon you that that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Verse 26, you shall eat and not be satisfied. Verse 31, I will not smell your pleasing aromas. I will not accept your sacrifices. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and your land shall be a desolation. That's just a few extracts from the longer list of the curses that God will pour out upon Israel if they break the covenant that he has made with them. Well, Micah, as one of the prophets, is reinforcing the covenant to the people, saying, you have done all of these things contrary to God's law. Here are the consequences. Here are the curses. Let's read verses 13 through 16 of Micah 6. Therefore, because of your wickedness, because of your disobedience, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. That's the language of Leviticus 26. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. That's Leviticus 26. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away or store up, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. That's Leviticus 26. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. How have they lived? Have they lived according to God's law and the pattern that he gave for them in the Mosaic Covenant? He says, no, you've patterned yourselves after Omri and Ahab. Do you remember what Ahab did when he said, I wish I had Naboth's vineyard, and he wasn't man enough to do anything about it, not that he should have, but Jezebel machinated and she manipulated and she had a false accusation brought against Naboth that he had cursed the name of the Lord and and so Naboth was stoned. Hey, guess what? Naboth's dead. We can take his vineyard. So deceit, manipulation, power, lies, violence, everything that Ahab represents, including idolatry and Omri the same, kings of Israel, God says, those are the statutes you've kept. That's how you've lived 
in violence and deceit and oppression and affliction and abuse and idolatry. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. I make you a desolation. I make your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. In other words, other nations look at you and they, they recoil. You know the phrase, it's, it's sort of a modern phrase, secondhand shame. When you see someone else doing something embarrassing or as the younger people would say, cringy, and you cringe because they're doing something cringy, you have secondhand shame. You're ashamed for them even though you didn't even do anything. You're just watching it and feeling, uh, would you please stop? Well, in that way, but worse, people look at Israel and they just, they say, oh, what happened to them is so horrible. They're such a detestable people. Look at what's happened to them. You're, you're a byword and a proverb, other parts of the Old Testament say. People say, at least we're not like Israel. It's your desolation is so well known. What happened to you and what you've suffered is going to be so well known. People will think of you as a phrase. You'll be a saying. At least we're not like Israel. At least we're not like Judah. At least we're not like Samaria. At least we're not like Jerusalem. If you sow, you will not reap. If you store up, what you store up will not be preserved. It will decay. You'll go to your stores and say, where are the things I stored up? They're gone. Or they'll be given to the sword. Someone will just take them. All of this, why, why would God do this? Well, Micah 6 is coming hundreds of years after God had given the Mosaic Covenant and the prophets had repeatedly called Israel to repent of their sins against the covenant. But as Leviticus 26 said, the vengeance of the covenant is coming. Well, what can we learn from Micah chapter 6? Let's come now to the outline of the sermon. And I have two main headings. Two main headings. And the first of those main headings is going to have three subpoints. The first main heading is lament and repent. Lament and repent. We've seen God formally charge Israel and Judah with sin. And the reality is that we need to submit ourselves to the same judgment. We need to put ourselves under the same scrutiny for the same sins. So under this heading of lament and repent, please consider three things with me. Number one. Number one is counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity. When we studied Micah chapter 3, if you have a good memory or just good notes, one of the points we made is that we should not be presumptuous or passive in our piety. In our religious life, we should not be presumptuous or passive. Israel and Judah were presumptuous. They said, we've got the temple. We're in the Holy Land. We're God's people. How could anything happen to us? We have prophets. We have priests. But their prophet, prophets were for-profit prophets, and the priests did not teach the law rightly. It was just an outward show. It looked like God's people, and it looked like the religion that God had instituted, but it wasn't. And in Micah 6, we see that their sins are exposed, and they don't know how to get rid of them. They're already offering sacrifices. So maybe we should offer more sacrifices, but God doesn't eat animal flesh. God doesn't drink animal blood. He doesn't delight in oil. So we might say, how does this connect to us? We don't offer sacrifices. 
But sacrifices were one of the outward forms of the, the, the Israelites' religious life. One of the ways in which they put into practice and lived out their cultic or religious life was through sacrifices. It was an act of worship and devotion. And we also have an outward life of worship and devotion, don't we? We gather on the Lord's day. We read the word of God. We pray. We sing. We listen to sermons. We come to the Lord's Supper. We do this every Sunday. But is it the case that at times you too simply go through the motions of the life of the church and outwardly you're doing the right things, but you have to ask yourself, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? Because what does God actually want? God doesn't delight in sacrifices. He doesn't need animals or their flesh or their blood or the oil of olives. God doesn't delight in sacrifices because those things are not an end in themselves, as though that's the end. That's what God wants. So also, does God just like singing? Do we sing because, well, God likes singing, so we sing. If God wanted singing because he liked singing, he wouldn't ask us to sing. He wouldn't ask me to sing. He doesn't need my singing. He doesn't ask me to sing or command me to sing because that's what he likes. He just likes singing. The singing is not the end in itself, and it's not ultimately what God wants. Does God just like prayers? Well, let's just, then let's just read a bunch of prayers to him because I guess he likes them. It's not the fact that people are singing. It's not the fact that people are praying that pleases God. What pleases God? That his children want to worship him. That his children want to sing his praises. That his children want to pray to him. When we sing, we are singing to God. We're not singing to each other. When we pray, we are praying to God. Yes, there is a singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but that's a, in many ways a side effect of what we're doing. We are worshiping God. And that's what God wants. He wants his children to have an inward love for him that then wells up and spills out in vocalized worship, namely psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He wants a heart that seeks communion with him and wells up and spills out in prayer our Father in heaven, as we speak to our God and we praise him in our prayers and we bring our petitions to him in our prayers and we confess our sins in our prayers and more, just as we do in singing. What God wants is a heart that overflows into praise and prayer. But if we just go through the motions outwardly with a heart that is disconnected or cold, disinterested, distracted, bored, impatient, when will the sermon be over Mommy, is it still Sunday? Then we need to repent and lament. Or the other way around, lament and repent. If we're just going through the motions because mommy and daddy make me go to church, if we're just going through the motions because our hearts have strayed from the Lord, then we're just simulating a reality. And it's counterfeit Christianity. Now, let me make a clarification. Is it the case that Christians get distracted in worship? Yes. Do Christians also struggle with seasons of coldness in their hearts? They do. But we lament these things, and we repent of these things. 
We need to be sure that we offer our sacrifices of prayer and praise with a heart that loves God because it's not the fact that we're singing or the fact that we're praying that pleases God. It's a heart that loves God and expresses that love in worship and in prayer. A devoted heart, a heart that loves and worships God from that love. So let us, insofar as we commit the sin of counterfeit Christianity, let us lament it and repent of it. Secondly, under this first main heading, secondly, selfishness and pride. If we pay attention, God is accusing the Israelites of selfishness and pride because when you accumulate treasures of wickedness through violence, through deceit, through manipulation, oppression, and all the rest, what are you ultimately doing? You're ultimately saying, I want to get more for me, and if I have to hurt you to get it, so be it, because I'm getting what I want. It's all about me. Why do they use violence? Why do they use deceit? Why do they use fraudulent practices and so on and so forth? Because they want to get what they want. And what is that? That's pride and selfishness. A self-centeredness that loves oneself and obeys oneself and does everything that one thinks is good for oneself, for the good of oneself. But what sums up the law? What are the two greatest commandments? If the law gets summed up, it's you shall love yourself with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love yourself as yourself. Is that the summary of the law? Of course not. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, the the law of God leads us away from selfishness, away from pride, to a true love for God and a true love for our neighbor. That's to do justice. That's to do kindness and to walk humbly before our God. It's to love God and to love our neighbor. Now you might think, I'm not really in a position of power to oppress other people. I'm not a magistrate, and I don't have some huge business corporation that I can use to to leverage my resources to maximize my profits at the expense of other people. So I guess this just doesn't apply to me. Next point, please. But our selfishness and pride are just as real, and we use them in the same ways, just in different contexts, namely our relationships, especially marriage, but not just marriage, all relationships. We use verbal violence to get what we want. We use deceit and manipulation to get what we want, and often at the expense of others. There are many oppressive relationships where there is a disproportion in benefit and effort, where love and affection are not given freely, but are withheld as a bargaining tool or a controlling tool. A spouse could withhold love and affection from her husband until he does what she wants. And a husband could withhold love and affection from his spouse until she does what he wants. When I get what I want, then I will give back to you. What is that? But selfishness and pride oppressing the other person. We do the exact same things with verbal violence. I will speak harshly to you. I will criticize you and cut you down until you do what I want. Or I won't say anything nice to you or loving to you until you do what I want. The tongue does great damage, does it not, 
to cut others to shreds. So we may think, I'm not, a, I'm not a magistrate in Israel, I'm not a big businessman, the corporations, they're evil. We commit the same sins in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships. You need to stop and think, is the other person's life, other person meaning your spouse or a family member or a friend, in whatever relationship, is the other person's life better because of you and what you do and how you live? Or is their life worse because of you? What if the other person's life is worse, they have a worse life because of the things you say and the things you do, or the things you don't say and the things you don't do? That's selfishness, and that's pride. And we ought to lament it and repent of it. Thirdly, Consider sins against grace. Sins against grace. One of the things that should convict us of our sin, perhaps more than anything else, is to consider that we sin against grace. Micah has been exposing the sins of Israel throughout this book. But where is it that we see the people of Israel respond and have no defense, but they are clearly convicted and they don't know how to make satisfaction. It's when God recounts his mighty deeds. It's when God reminds them of all that he's done for them. That's when they realize the infinite disproportion between their actions and God's actions. God says, have I wearied you? Have I just annoyed you or bothered you with all that I've done for you so that you would go away from me? And the people have no choice but to say, of course not. You've done everything for us. Remorse and a response from Israel come when God reminds them of all that he has done to free them from slavery and give them a a beautiful inheritance. And we need to remember, therefore, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, hopeless and helpless. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's grace to us is from the richness of his mercy and the great love with which he loved us and all that Jesus did for us to be incarnate, to dwell among people like us, to be crucified and shamed and mistreated and abused and suffer in every possible way for us and for our salvation. God did all of this when we were still sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, while we still hated him and deserved none of it. By grace, he saved us and did everything for us. He saved us from our Egyptian bondage. He overpowered Pharaoh and the Red Sea. He brought us out from sin and death and brought us into a new life and a new creation and a glorious inheritance freely, powerfully, mightily, miraculously. What has God not given us? Is there anything God has withheld from us? He's given us everything because he's given us his son and made us co-heirs with his son. So there's nothing that we could ever point to and say, but God, you didn't give this to me. He's given us everything. 
He's forgiven us all our sins. And yet, how have we repaid him? How have we repaid him? I don't mean repaying as in the way you repay a loan. What have we retributed? What have we showed as a response? God said in Micah 6.3, What have I done to you, O my people? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Have we been grateful for his grace? Have we improved on his grace by killing sin and walking in holiness? When you remember all the kind things that someone has done for you, it magnifies your sin. Children usually reach a point, they mature to a point where they begin to grasp all that their parents have done for them. And then they think, oh, I wish I hadn't said this, or I wish I hadn't done that, because I did not properly perceive the disproportion in a parent-child, a loving parent-child relationship. Well, multiply that times infinity. As we come to grips or we wonderfully perceive all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then it will magnify in our eyes our sins against God and against his grace, sins of ingratitude, sins of neglect, sins of mistreatment. Brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered and died for you. What has he done to us that we should repay him with such nonchalance, such coldness or lukewarmness at best in our love and our obedience unto him, as though he's wearied us, as though he asks just too much for us. Does Jesus ask too much from us? By telling us to live in holiness and walk in his footsteps? Has he wearied us? Yes, Jesus, you saved me from hell. You became incarnate for me and died and rose again. But I just, no. We have no defense. There's no defense. All we can do is lament and repent of our sins against grace. And yet God demands an answer. Answer me, he says. So what do we do? We do lament and we do repent, but will God accept our repentance? Will God accept our repentance? And the answer is yes, but not because of us, but because of something else, which leads us to our second main heading where we will spend the rest of this sermon. Number two, innocence and obedience. Innocence and obedience. In Micah 6, we see that desperation. With what shall I come before the Lord? You look through your house, you say, do we have anything that we can present to God? What can I bring to bow myself before God on high? How can I, how can I make satisfaction for my sin? And then Micah says, well, God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants obedience. We already heard Samuel's words to Saul that to obey, obedience, is better than to sacrifice. We read this also in Proverbs 22, verse 3, which says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do righteousness and justice, obedience, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So follow this chain of reasoning with me. If God wants obedience and not sacrifice, but you have been disobedient and God will not accept your sacrifice, What's the situation? 
you're out of options. There's no remedy. There's no escape, no restoration, no satisfaction, no atonement. And that's what happened to Israel and Judah. The, the Old Testament explicitly says this in Kings and Chronicles. And there was no remedy. And so God used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge his people and to pour out the curses of the covenant upon them. But what about us? How can we be right with God? With what shall we come before the Lord? Well, the beautiful good news of the Holy Scriptures is that God himself has provided innocence and obedience in Jesus Christ our Lord, God in the flesh. Consider what the Old Testament taught and what Jesus is and what Jesus did. As our church has been reading through Leviticus in the afternoon service, we know that God instituted the sacrificial system and that he would accept unblemished animal victims as a means to restore the Israelites' holiness so that they can persist in the land of Canaan. But the Old Testament makes it clear that what God wants is obedience, as we've said many times, to be holy, not to be unholy and then to use a sacrifice to maintain your holiness. God wants obedience. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That was Proverbs 21.3. In Jesus Christ... We see both of these. We see an innocent sacrifice, an unblemished, perfect, pure, innocent sacrifice, and we see an obedient son, the true Israel, the true obedient son. And this innocence and obedience is what makes Jesus' death on the cross so wonderfully and beautifully powerful to wash away all our sins, even our sins against grace. Because there's two ways to make satisfaction for a wrong. One is an equal restitution, an eye for an eye. Another is to offer an unequal restitution by giving something more valuable than what was lost. So you repay something at an equal value or you repay with a greater value and in Jesus Christ, we see both of those things. We see that his innocent death is an eye for an eye. For on the day you eat thereof, God said to Adam, you shall surely die. And so Jesus Christ gave his life. He died as a pure, innocent, perfect sacrifice. Paul says in Ephesians 5.2 that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Death is demanded, death is delivered, an eye for an eye with direct satisfaction. But in the case of Jesus, there was no necessity that he should die, being an innocent person. Rather, why did Jesus die? He says in John 10:18, I received this command from my Father. I was commanded to lay down my life for the sheep that the Father gave to me. And so Jesus' sacrifice is a self-sacrifice. It's an act of obedience as Jesus lays down his life. No one takes it from him. So it's not only the offering of an innocent victim in our place, but what makes Jesus' sacrifice so abundantly acceptable is that it is, the, it is an act of willing obedience. 
He offers his righteousness. He offers his justice. He offers his kindness and his love, which is more acceptable than the mere punishing of a sacrificial victim. What's more acceptable to God, says the Old Testament? Sacrifice or obedience? In Jesus, we have both. We have the eye for an eye sacrifice, and we have that perfect obedience that Jesus offers up. The precious firstborn son gave his body and shed his blood, innocent, pure, and unstained by sin. He gave his life, obedient, righteous, holy, and just, and he was accepted by God. He was accepted for his innocence and his obedience. And so all those who ask the question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high, how can I make satisfaction for the sin of my soul? The one and the only answer is to come before God and present unto him the innocent and obedient sacrifice of the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, through whose death and life full and perfect satisfaction has been made to God's law and his justice in our place. And we have been freed from our Egyptian bondage, from our condemnation to hell. And we have been given an inheritance, a new life, which is given to all who call upon that name. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved from that wrath to come, will be saved from that bondage, will be saved from that slavery. In Micah 6, we see the question, could I possibly give my firstborn son something more precious than an animal to make satisfaction for the sins of my soul? And the obvious answer is, no, I can't. But God says, I can. I can provide the most precious, the most perfect, the most powerful sacrifice in your place. And does God, to use a modern term, does God gatekeep this? Does he say, and only the rich, and only the powerful, and only the perfect, and only this or that, and the other person can come to this sacrifice, can come to this atonement and receive it. No, he says, all you must do is come to Jesus and call upon his name and believe in him and confess that he was raised from the dead and you shall be saved. Without distinction, Jew or Greek, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, powerful or weak, sick or well, Choose any distinction that men use to divide people. And God says, none of that applies here. The gospel is for all the nations, for all persons, in all times and in all places. And all those who call upon the name of my son will receive my mercy and my forgiveness and have everlasting life in his name. And brothers and sisters, this is why God accepts our repentance. Because we ask him to forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. And in Jesus' name, pleading the merits and the mercies of Jesus on our behalf. And that is why we ought not to doubt, but that we are forgiven. When God declares your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, they are forgiven in Christ Jesus. If only he would leave us something by which we can remember this sacrifice and be refreshed in that conscience refreshing forgiveness every Lord's Day. If only there was some way to participate in a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus. Oh wait, what a beautiful thing the Lord's Supper is to refresh the soul, to feed the soul as we remember Jesus' powerful sacrifice of innocence and obedience suffering in our place. And not just suffering, but offering his beautiful obedience for us.
and thus forgiven, brothers and sisters. We live with gratitude to walk in that holiness unto which he has called us, to strive not to sin against that grace, but to live in it and to live by it, looking to God's love for us in Christ Jesus as our motivation to do justice and to love mercy and kindness and to walk humbly before our God because Jesus gave himself for us to show us true love. And so we respond to his love with love. We respond to his greatness with worship. We respond to his mercy with prayer, encouraged to draw near to him who loved us and gave his life for us. And we live with thanksgiving every single day because these truths are true every single day. Do you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do, rejoice. Rejoice in these beautiful and precious truths. We see in Micah 6, accusation and proven guilt and condemnation and desperation about how to deliver myself. But when we shine the light of the gospel on this or when we read it in light of the gospel, we see deliverance deliverance, that God has made a new covenant with us in Christ Jesus, the promise of which is to remember our sins no more, not like or not according to the covenant that he made with the house of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, but with a promise of perfect forgiveness in the body and the blood and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Praise God for Jesus Christ and the covenant that he has given to us in and through him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you all our thanks and our praise for sending your firstborn and precious, innocent and obedient Son to save us from our sins. And Jesus Christ, our God in the flesh, we praise you and we thank you that you gave your life for us, that you lived obediently for us, that you suffered for us, we praise you, Jesus, and we love you, Jesus. We adore you and we worship you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, our great God, we praise you and worship you that you have brought Jesus to us through the word, that you have caused us to see him and believe in him, that you guarantee his presence with us and his power in us. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great God, we thank you for our salvation. And we pray that you would help us to live because of it, and to live in light of it, and to live through it. Help us to live with gospel obedience, and gospel holiness, and gospel gratitude all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.